This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. Join us for a traditional Master of Divinity preview day on March the 27th. Enjoy conversations with faculty, lunch with current students, informational sessions, and a class observation, as well as a campus tour and Tenebrae worship service. For more information on Divinity School and the upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to make you aware of the next month's worth of episodes and tell you about this summer's General Assembly. For the next few episodes, you'll hear interviews with Daniel Burke of CNN, Professor and activist Drew Hart, this summer's keynote speaker, Dr. Jerusalem Neal of Duke Divinity School, and author of Preaching in the Era of Trump, Wes Allen. Have you registered for General Assembly? This year's gathering will take place in Dallas Hyatt Regency, June 11th through the 15th. Network gatherings, workshops, leadership institute, and worship will begin on Wednesday, June the 13th wrapping up with commissioning on June the 15th of field personnel, chaplains, and church starters. Visit cbf.net for more information and to register. Our guest for this week's podcast is Kathy Henderson of Slave Free Earth. One thing I tell you about Kathy is that she's a person of grace and patience. Twice I've goofed up on our interview time because I failed to calculate the effective time zone and days uh, so I'd line up the call for February 10th, for example, at 8 p.m. Eastern time, which is technically 8 a.m. February 11th in Thailand. I'm an idiot. Kathy's brilliant. Kathy, <laughs> thank you for joining the conversation. Good to be here. And don't worry about it. I once called my daughter at five in the morning and just talked and talked until she said, Mom, you woke me up. <laughs> it's important. Yeah. yeah. I was <laughs> well, just chatting about nothing. <laughs> Now, I know you're originally from uh, Missoula, Montana, uh, so how did how'd you end up in Thailand? Tell us more about your story. It's actually a little farther north of Missoula. It's up Eureka, Montana, is almost to the Canadian border, so way up there in the northwest corner of Montana. Um, I grew up with parents who loved Jesus and modeled their faith in very tangible ways by showing forgiveness and generosity. And I grew up in uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance. So we had people from all over the world coming to our church very regularly, staying in our home and just sharing about what God was doing around the world. And I think that just got a foothold in my heart. And uh, so when I was about 13, I felt that call to to ministry 
and never wavered in that. Went to Bible college in Canada and uh, went into ministry and straight out of Bible college. And uh, as far as getting to Thailand, <laughs> um, long story short, uh, we I um, was married. Um, sorry, this is complicated. <laughs> I didn't, um, we were in ministry in the States for a number of years and then went overseas as Assembly of God missionaries to China and then to Kazakhstan. And uh, as our daughters were, we have two daughters, as our daughters were graduating and heading off to college, we started to learn more about human trafficking and uh, just felt a real sense that we were at a place in our lives where we could engage in that uh, ministry and make a difference. And so we had been to Thailand many times in the past and had seen firsthand the, uh, the sex trade here and knew that it was a, a big issue here in Thailand. And so we decided to jump into the new ministry and, and founded Slave Free Earth. And about that was about seven years ago now and moved to Thailand in 2013. So I've been here for about five years now. Well, I did notice that uh, today in Eureka, it's going to be uh, around 21 most of the day. And in <laughs> Thailand, it's going to be 92. So yes. you really went opposite ends of, of the spectrum there. Um, yes. Well, you know, as you as you talk about uh, human trafficking and, and kind of preparing our conversation for today, um, you know, I've read some of these stats before, but they're staggering. So I thought I'd share a little bit with our audience and then you can speak obviously into these. Uh, wow. 2007, the International Labor Organization estimates that there's 2.49 million victims um, that are trapped in modern day slavery. And of these 16 million, which is 64%, were exploited for labor. 4.8, which is 19% for sexual exploitation, and 4.1, 17% were exploited in state imposed forced labor. Um, and when you look, when you look at the breakdown of the age demographic, 15.4 um, million are 18 and older, and 5.5 million are 18 and younger. Um, you know, what was it about human trafficking that you said, um, this is this is where I want to. Um, I want to respond to my vocational calling. Um, you know, the statistics are just overwhelming. As I first started to learn about trafficking, I was just blown away. Like, and they're very difficult because there's a wide range. So you have, you know, the International Labor Organization has their stats. And then you've got the Global Slavery Index, which puts it at like 45 million so wide variance because it's very difficult to track and people have different definitions of what constitutes trafficking but we're talking millions of people here but you can kind of look at a statistic and uh, get overwhelmed by it and then do nothing so it wasn't until I actually started to meet some of these women that are trapped in forced prostitution, that it really broke my heart. We were living in Kazakhstan at the time, 
and uh, we had heard that there were these girls that were being forced into prostitution at this hotel close to our house. And so a couple other women and I thought we would just go see um, if we could connect with some of them, if there was any way we could reach out to them. And so we went and there was a tea house in the bottom part of the hotel and we sat there and and uh, just waited to see if anyone would come along. And this young girl came and we asked her to sit with us and she did. And she just told us her story about how her parents had got deep in debt and how this was the only way that they could get out of debt was to sell her into this organization that would prostitute her out. And she sat and talked with us for quite some time. And then um, at the end, you know, we were, she speaks Russian and we were kind of going back and forth between Russian and English. And we asked her, you know, if there was a way for you to get out, would you take it? And I'll never forget her response was immediately, she said, Konyeshna, which in Russian is, of course. <laughs> and that just hit me that, you know, we have this idea from social media, from movies, that women in prostitution are happy to be there. And I can't tell you the number of times that when I tell someone what I do, that's their response. Well, those girls like to do that. They really enjoy that. Wow. And, you know, I know response immediately was, no, I, if there was a way out for me, I would take it. And I think that just resonated in my heart that we have to make a way out. We have to, you know, we can't just offer women the love of Jesus and girls who are trapped and boys who are trapped in, in sex trafficking, the love of Jesus without giving them a tangible way out. And so I think that was the moment where my journey began to, to try to build something that would offer them not just unconditional love and grace, but a tangible way out of this life that they're trapped in. Hmm. I think for a lot of people, um, if, if they've even engaged this conversation, they think, they think of it as just this, you know, uh, this foreign concept globally speaking. I mean, um, I mean, longitude, latitude, um, but you know, I was looking in um, Urban Institute uh, released uh, some uh, some stats that said that uh, in, in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where CBF's yeah. global office is based, um, um, the underground sex economy um, is $290 million a year. Yeah. And Atlanta's a huge hub. Yeah. You know, the interstates, uh, the multiple interstates coming through there, the um, obviously the, the busiest airport in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you look at the, the stats around um, the money that's spent on human trafficking. It's a $150 billion um, industry. And mm -hmm. what's crazy is I was gauging this. $99 billion is for commercial sexual expo exploitation. And you compare that to one of the biggest industries that gets so much of our attention because we do, uh, you know, fantasy sports. We're watching on Sundays, on Saturdays, on on Thursday nights is, you know, to compare that to the NFL, which is a $13 billion industry, which is a huge industry yeah. in the United States and across the world, but $99 billion on sexual exploitation. Um, yeah. 
So, so zeroing in to your specific work, um, you know, the Asian Pacific region accounts for um, one of the largest numbers of forced labor and, of course, sexual exploitation. 15.4 uh, million is the estimate that came um, out of uh, the International Labor Organization. So, uh, obviously, the stats speak for that. But how did, how did you find yourself in Thailand specifically uh, working alongside those that are being trafficked? Um, like I mentioned before, we had been here because when we lived in China, we would often come out to Thailand for our conferences. And so we'd been here quite a bit and seen um, firsthand the vast amounts of women that are in the sex trade here. Like it's just, you know, you know how each of our states in the U.S. has like a slogan, you know, Montana's the big sky country. We have these these uh, slogans that try and entice people to come and uh, see our home state and to experience what our state has to offer. Thailand has a slogan. It's called the brothel to the world. And uh, so that gives you an idea of just how prevalent the sex trade is here. And we had been working in... Uh, like a communist setting in China and then in, in uh, Kazakhstan, it was very restrictive um, with the, the Muslim uh, government. And we'd wanted to work in a way that we could just do the work that we were called to without um, having to kind of carefully walk around all the issues and, and be more covert. We just wanted to go for it and and do what we were called to do here and so Thailand just seemed a, a good fit for that but also the more we kind of studied up and we did travel to to some other countries we went to Burma met some amazing women there that uh, Burmese women that are doing just incredible work um, to rescue young girls out of the sex trade there um, Thailand is when you when you hear and uh, kind of engage in the topic of human trafficking, you'll hear about countries that are source, their transit, and their destination countries. Thailand is all three of those. So in Thailand, you have a source country, which means that Thai women are taken from Thailand and sent around the world in uh, and trafficked into the sex trade. Just a couple years ago, there was a big bust in the U.S. where dozens of Thai women were rescued from uh, human traffickers. So you have Thai women in the U.S., you have them um, in large numbers in Middle Eastern countries, in Japan. They're a commodity that's taken out of this country and sold like a product around the rest of the world. But it's also a transit country because of corruption and porous borders. So you have many, many people from, especially now with the crisis in Burma, um, you have a lot of refugees coming across the border and, and there's no one to protect them and uh, speak out for them, advocate for them, make sure that they are safe. So those people are often vulnerable and are, um, can be taken across borders, whether it's from here to into China or sent out uh, to 
just all over the globe. So it's a transit country and then it's a destination country. Like I said, it has a reputation for being a, the brothel to the world. So this is a place where uh, hundreds of thousands of men flock to Thailand every year to participate in the sex trade. Um, and it's a destination not just to come and buy a Thai woman, but we have girls here from all over the world. We've um, got women from African nations, from Russia, from the former Soviet republics. Um, I've heard men say they want to come here and, and buy, and they'll name off five, six different girls, types of girls, nationalities of girls that they want to buy while they're here. So um, that, along with the fact that the, the sex tourism that we see now was kind of launched by <clears throat> American servicemen after the Vietnamese War. During the Vietnamese War, you had uh, men that would come here for R&R, and after the war ended, some of them came back and opened bars and uh, started to participate in the industry here, and that just kind of took off. So what we see now today in this, uh, I mean, prostitution has always been in Thailand. I can't you know, we can't pin that on American participation, but what we see as Thailand being a destination country for men to come and participate in the sex trade was launched in its current form from um, American servicemen coming back and promoting it as a destination to come and participate in the sex trade and to buy women and uh, so that as an American that kind of uh, stirs my heart as well and and running to to uh, right or wrong there and to uh, show that there's another side to Americans and the the way we value people mm. so no I'm trying, I'm not being cynical, but when you look at the volume of human trafficking, how do you even begin to, to get your mind and heart and soul around this work? Mm -hmm. It's overwhelming. You know, it's, um, I often say the, the street that we work on, the red light district that we work on here. So I'm in, I'm in Thailand, but I'm in Southern Thailand on the island of Phuket. And we work in the city of Patong, which is a city that was built specifically for the sex trade. So the main road that runs through the center of the city to the beach is one giant uh, brothel, basically. It just has bar after bar after bar and clubs and, and uh, women for sale night after night and so I often say you know we could we could go in and rescue all those girls and they would the, they would be full again they would have just as many girls the next week because there's so many vulnerable women and uh, that can be overwhelming <laughs> yeah. but 
the more I do this and uh, I just, I'm, I'm constantly reminded to focus on the woman that's in front of me, to focus on the girl or the boy that, that God has placed in my care, in my sphere of influence at that moment. And so if I'm down ministering in the red light district, you know, I look for that girl that, that God has called me to love on and to, to show his kindness to that night. And I think that's the only way I can keep going. <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't rescue millions, but um, I can, I can be there. You know, we just had a, re a girl that uh, from Russia recently, and uh, she contacted a partner of mine and said she wanted out. She had found out she was pregnant and she she needed out and she wanted help and so we got her out she came and stayed with me and then the the local anti-trafficking police said it was too uh, dangerous for her to stay here on the island because she not only wanted to get out she wanted justice and she was naming names she was giving information about the the structure here of the trafficking networks and uh, so her and I they had her passport which is very common you know they take any any uh, identification papers or any travel documents from the girls and they keep them so the girls have limited uh, movement and so we couldn't fly so we took a bus up to Bangkok and um, she sadly had a miscarriage on the way and so I stayed with her and and just loved on her for about a week and then connected her with another ministry that was able to get her back to her home in Russia and uh, I just think that's one <laughs> you know mm -hmm. I'm still able to to chat with her on uh, you know there's so many apps now it's called whatsapp and we we talk every um, couple days and uh, she's one of millions but she's still one and her name is known to our creator mm. and uh that's you know when i get frustrated when i get discouraged by the the large volume i can think of her we need to pause and tell you about one of our presenting sponsors campbell university divinity school are you struggling with the call of god in your life do you feel like you've been called to ministry? Since 1996, Campbell University Divinity School has been providing theological education that is Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused. Our calling is to prepare individuals academically, spiritually, and practically to be faithful and skilled ministers in the world. We offer multiple master-level programs, including several dual-degree options, as well as a doctorate of ministry program. Our Master of Divinity degree is flexible enough that individuals can build a program that best suits their interest and calling. Campbell University Divinity School is intentionally inclusive of anyone who can affirm and claim Christ as Lord, the Bible as authority, and ministry as a calling, without debating the details. Our students come from many different denominations, ethnic backgrounds, and age groups. We believe that the diverse environment of our school enriches each student's experience by providing an opportunity for meaningful conversations and the possibility of learning from someone who is different from you. The most distinctive feature of our school is the way that our faculty, staff, and students care for and support each other, both in and out of the classroom. 
We invite you to visit us to learn more about who we are. A master level visitation day will be held on Tuesday, March the 27th. Individual visits are also welcome. Learn more about our programs and apply online at divinity.campbell.edu. Well, you've, you've spoken on of, of what you believe. Um, you believe in the beauty of justice that walks hand in hand with mercy, mm. the beauty of community, the beauty of the incarnation, and the beauty of redeeming love. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I think uh, I've been on a journey. You know, I've, like I said, I grew up in a, a Christian home and uh, fairly uh, conservative, evangelical upbringing. But as I've experienced living overseas and interacting with different faiths and uh, just different even believer um, Christians from other uh, denominations. Uh, I just have really come to see the kingdom of God is not coercive. And the way that we're drawn into the kingdom of God is through beauty and through invitation. And I just think it's imperative that as we're building the kingdom of God, that we do it in a way that invites people in, you know, that we create space, that we create places where um, the love of God is, is evident in uh, our lives, in the way we interact with each other. I'm a part of a team here that is, uh, there's a, a group called For Freedom International that I've partnered with. And I just think it's imperative that the way we treat each other as Christians is uh, invitational, that it's something that people look at and see as beautiful and, and they are invited to be a part of that. And I think we've lost that in a lot of our... Um, evangelical spaces back in the states and so for me my heart is just to to make that space of beauty and uh, grace and then allow god's spirit to draw people into it without judgment without um expectations on you know the things that i offer with slavery earth the services the the help is unconditional and so if we have a you know a young buddhist girl that comes to us there is going to be no expectation that she believes the way i believe but we just want to invite her into a safe loving environment and uh, do our best to be jesus to her i i don't know i kind of the way you said that makes me have to ask please tell me there are not religious organizations that refuse to help someone because they might be of a different faith in them. Yeah. I'm afraid there are. Oh um, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it may not be stated in that way, but in order to participate in their programs, you also have to participate in like a daily 
Bible study that would be very um, conservative or, or that's not the right word, but um, coercive mm-hmm. in its uh, presentation. And so, yeah, I mean, there are more and more, I think, I think there's a movement and an understanding growing that um, the gospel needs to be more than just uh, words and more than just, you know, this, this getting people to heaven that it has been a lot of the missionary work that's been done, you know, is just like, we got to get people to say this prayer and get them to heaven. Like there's a recognition that God has called us to be his uh, love and grace and mercy in this world. And we just need to do that without strings attached. So I do see more and more like a lot of the, people that I work with, like that's the understanding is that we are just here to follow our calling and love people. And that is across all um, borders and boundaries and stereotypes. And we're just called to love and to do that well. Well, um, for the sake of me not going off some self-righteous theological rant uh, around all the issues I have with um, approach ministry that way, um, let me just ask this. What's a day in the life of your work? Um, You know, a lot of it is very normal, you know, meetings and I study Thai a couple times a week. So I'm, I'm a student, so I'm still learning and studying Thai. Um, But the best days are the days that we do uh, outreach. So right now we're uh, focusing on one main area of the red light district. So every Thursday we're going down and we have a salon that we've rented on this uh, street. There's one little salon and the rest are our clubs and bars. And uh, these are some of the worst of the worst. These bars and clubs have names like Diablo, the devil's playground. And these are bars where women, we don't, they're behind closed doors. So we have a difficult time even getting into some of the the clubs um, there to, to see the women and the, the men that are out front have these big paddles that they slap against their hand and make this terrible noise. And that's to entice men into the club and they invite them to hit the girls as part of their experience there. And so we have this opportunity to be on that street every Thursday and we have a salon where we offer to do the girls' hair or makeup or fingernails for free. And it gives us an opportunity just to have a half an hour, 45 minutes to, to uh, get to know them, to love them, to share, you know, they can share their life story with us just to be a safe space for them to come 
for just a moment and uh, experience a situation where we're not demanding anything of them, where we're just loving them. And uh, we do that from five to nine. And then on Wednesdays, we go and we, we talk to them and invite them and, and tell them that we're coming the next day. And those days, like to me, are that's just why I'm here. Those are the days where I actually get to to sit with these girls and to hear their story and to to build trust because there's got to be trust in order for them to accept our help. They've had countless people break promises to them. Uh, you know, men come here and say, oh, I'll, I'll help you. I want you to get out of this. And, and so we're just at that place where we're building trust with these girls and uh, in the hopes that they will accept the help that we're offering. And so that's, um, that's a typical Wednesday and, and Thursday. The rest of the week, you know, it's, it's uh, a lot of prep work. I do English teaching as part of our outreach. So I, I teach English to the girls. So there's lesson planning and uh, yeah, just a lot of the, the daily grind of life too. <laughs> as, you, as you minister um, to these people, as you uh, are the, the incarnational presence of Christ, mm. have you, I mean, have you discovered the... Um, I, don't know, I imagine the uh, inconceivable barrier of trying to tell someone of um, of an all-encompassing and all all-compassionate God um, who values them, and and to use um, the language we typically use around God, the Father. Um, is there is there a theological barrier that sometimes you you run across with uh, people who are typically victims of of you know, male perpetrators of male um, dominant, um, whether it be people who are, I guess, their business owner or those that are paying customers. Yeah. Yeah, that image of father is not always uh, one that, you know, women can embrace or even, even men sometimes, you know. And so what I typically like to do is to point them to Jesus um, and the stories where he interacts with women, you know, the story of the woman at the well or the way he interacts with Mary and, and uh, the other women that followed him, I think are just eye-opening to the girls, like to see a man who is in a a position of teacher because they they respect teachers here most most of Asia has a very high regard for teachers and so if they look at Jesus as this teacher and then the way he treated women is just revolutionary you know to think that he would sit and and speak with a woman and and give her his time and defend her and um, especially the women that uh, have a poor reputation and yet he did not reject them. He invited them into his kingdom alongside everyone else. 
And uh, so that's, that's kind of where I try to lead the girls that, you know, it, it doesn't start there, but um, if we are able to develop a deeper relationship, that's where I like to take them and to uh, show them just, uh, Jesus is just, you know, <laughs> his ideas and the way that he uh, treated people to me is is really such an invitation and such a, a difference in in uh, the way that we see people treated today. And so um, that's really where I, I like to lead the girls. What would surprise us most about your work? Um, you know, I think... I've been thinking a lot about this lately, the idea of a uh, perfect victim. A lot of times in this kind of work, you know, people want to see this, this victim that's been uh, kind of taken from her home and thrown into this situation and she has no autonomy, she has no you know, absolutely no choice in what she's doing. And uh, we just don't find that a lot. There are, it's such nuanced situations here. Even like with, you know, the young Russian girl I was telling you about, she came here because she answered an ad in uh, Facebook, you know, traffickers use social media to get the girls here. She came because she loves to dance. And so she thought she could do exotic dance here and make lots of money. And of course, that's what they advertised. Um, so she came knowing she would be an exotic dancer. What she didn't realize was she would not be paid to dance. So her salary every month was given to her, but um, she didn't actually, that became debt unless she performs sexual acts. And so this idea that uh, there's this perfect victim that we can, we can put up on a pedestal and say, you know, look at this and, and uh, is just not reality. A lot of the girls that I work with, you know, they come here without any education and they're, Families are pressuring them to send money home because in Thailand, uh, it's a daughter's, the expectation is on the daughter to take care of her parents as they age. There's no social uh, system here that cares for the elderly. And so it's not the son. The son's, uh, he can make merit by becoming a monk in the temple for a week or 10 days or however long. Um, but the daughter can't do that. And so it's the expectation is on her to take care of her parents as they age financially. And so these women from very poor villages with no education um, often come to Bangkok or to where I'm at down here in Phuket looking for work and find that the only thing that they can do that will make any sort of uh, 
money that they can send home is to work in the sex industry. And so, you know, a lot of people would say, well, that's their choice. But is it really their choice when every other choice has been taken away from them, when society, when family, when financial pressures have led them to this place where that is the only thing in front of them that they can see as an option? And so I think that's what people don't understand and what surprises people is how complicated this is. I know it surprised me. You know, you go into this thinking, you know, you're going to barge in and rescue people that, you know, have been forced into this and have no uh, choice. And, and you get here and you're like, oh, my goodness, this is far more complicated than I ever dreamed. Um, in the U.S., you know, we have girls that are conditioned. So a pimp in the U.S., it's like there's even a, a book written that was actually sold on Amazon for a while. I'm not sure if it is anymore, but how to, how to manipulate a young girl into being, uh, you know, into prostituting herself for you. And so, um, you know, you, you have girls that are, are rescued and they have been so damaged and so manipulated into to thinking that this is is a, a way to get their pimp to love them that they will go back into it and you know it's it's just far more complicated far more nuanced than i ever dreamed it would be As you, as you think around your work, I mean, um, I can feel the weight of it just listening to it, looking at the stats. So um, what gives you life? Uh, what gives you energy to continue to do what you've been called to do? I think uh, I have an incredible family. <laughs> and so uh, I have two sisters and they're married to wonderful men. I have two daughters that just uh, are the love of my life, and I enjoy them. I, you know, we'll we'll talk every couple days, and uh, I think just having people in your life that know you for exactly who you are and love you in spite of your faults like that just brings me such joy um my family having a team here that i can trust and uh that values me and my participation in the work we do together is very life-giving um i kind of mentioned briefly that you know i was married but shortly after we moved to thailand my husband left um just kind of had a major major crisis in his life and gave up on ministry and marriage and everything and so um just having people that see me and value me is an incredible gift and i have that here um but in spite of all the ugliness that's here thailand is a beautiful place and so um, when things just get overwhelming, you know, I can hop on my motorbike 
and ride for 20 minutes and get to one of the most gorgeous beaches that you know in the world and just sit and allow God's creation to kind of wash over me and give me that renewed energy just to sit in in the beauty of creation I think is one of the ways that really does give me life and and energy where you're from you're not too far from Glacier National Park mm. so do you imagine a day um, where you um, retire from this work and go back home or is this is this a life calling where you see yourself here till till it's all done I think I will participate in anti-trafficking no matter where I'm at. Um, my parents are getting older and I could see myself, you know, in five or 10 years, perhaps going home and helping with their care um, and honoring them in that and my ability to do that for them. Um, but this is a i don't want to say issue because you know an issue reduces it to stats this these are people that i know and love and so wherever i'm at i can see myself participating in advocating for uh the end of modern day slavery in one way shape or form well i can certainly say that um you most certainly will hear well done good and faithful servant uh, you are uh, serving and loving on the people that uh, jesus intentionally went out of his way to to minister to um so thank you for that um, it is i i take great joy in it you know um it's incredible i feel like i i am loved as much as i love the girls and the women that I work with, you know, they're incredibly open to, to friendship and to relationship. And, um, oftentimes, you know, in some of my most difficult days and maybe I don't want to go in and teach English and I, I make myself go and do it. And I come away just feeling blessed and just feeling ministered to myself. And so I, I count it uh, a great honor to be here and a privilege. Well, for those that um, maybe will never make it to Thailand, how, how can we support you? Um, I have an incredible team of, of uh, supporters back in the States that, that pray for me, that donate regularly. Um, that you know that we I couldn't be here without that, and uh, so that's always an option for people who feel like maybe this is uh, something that God is putting on their heart to participate in, is to to give a, a monthly donation or a, a one-time donation, but certainly to also you know bring myself and slavery earth. Uh, to God in prayer and to to just ask him to use us and to to lead us in in ways that we can be most effective here and where we can 
really be bringing life and liberty to women and children here. For those that want to stay connected with Kathy and her work, you can visit slavefreeearth.com. Kathy, thank you so much for um, your brilliant work. Um, I know it's difficult. I know it's humbling. Um, but but you are doing um, very essential work for the kingdom of God. And, and I know I'm grateful. And those that are part of you and will learn your story will be grateful as well. Thank you, Andy. I appreciate you giving me a, a chance to share my story and to to talk about this. It's something I, I really am passionate about. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 